Welcome to Angels and Seer Stones. I'm Christine. And I'm Chris. Last month was the 200th anniversary of the angel Moroni appearing to Joseph Smith and beginning a relationship which would eventually result in the translation and publication of the Book of Mormon. Today's episode is devoted to Moroni lore. Stick around and find out about Moroni's legendary travels, a story about how he died, and the debates over his statues. Latter-day Saints are a people of radical faith. We are a unique body of Bible-believing Christians. For us, the scriptural canon has been opened. The traditional sacraments have expanded. Our beliefs and practices are steeped in universalism, esotericism, and apocalypticism. The Latter-day Saint tradition is a religion in which angels visit everyday people, and sometimes men and women see the divine in stones. In this podcast, we examine the lived religion of Latter-day Saints, the stories we tell, and the beliefs we debate. We take seriously the whole gambit of Latter-day Saint experience. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Angels and Seer Stories. Moroni is the quintessential Latter-day Saint angel. We first learn about the natures of angels from his stories. Most importantly, his appearance to Joseph Smith immediately communicated the doctrine that angels and human beings are not a different species as believed by mainstream Christians. Instead, angels are simply deceased men and women. This is what the wonderful scholar Samuel Morris Brown wrote in his award-winning book, In Heaven As It Is On Earth. Early in Joseph Smith's religious career, he announced, to the bemusement of critics and the adulation of followers, that he experienced sustained direct encounters with scores of angels, promising the same privileges to all who embraced his priesthood. Probably beginning with Moroni, the lost prophet of American prehistory, Smith reported having audiences with myriad supernatural beings. More than anything, these figures were holy men resurrected from the pages of ancient scripture. Smith derived his authority from them, used them as external evidence of his gold plates, shook their hands, and revealed their ancient identities. In simplest terms, his angels were the human dead, from the most glorious patriarch to the humblest of the dearly departed. Latter-day Saints may or may not realize just how unusual this belief is. I taught a course on angels and demons in literature for freshman BYU students last fall, and I was surprised how many did not realize that Catholics, Protestants, Muslims, and Jews typically did not hold the belief that humans and angels were one species. Right. The second thing early Latter-day Saints learned from the stories about the angel Moroni is probably obvious, but Moroni is our first introduction to the concept of Nephites and Lamanites, those ancient American civilizations whose history is recorded in the Book of Mormon. The story I like that demonstrates this is from Mother Smith's history. She talks about Joseph sharing with the family what he learned from Moroni. From this time forth, Joseph continued to receive instructions from the Lord, and we continued to get the children together every evening for the purpose of listening, while he gave us a relation of the same. I presume our family presented an aspect as singular as any that ever lived upon the face of the earth all seated in a circle, father, mother, sons, and daughters, and giving the most profound attention to a boy, 18 years of age, who had never read the Bible through in his life. During our evening conversations, Joseph would occasionally give us some of the most amusing recitals that could be imagined. He would describe the ancient inhabitants of this continent, their dress, mode of traveling, and the animals upon which they rode, their cities, their buildings, with every particular, their mode of warfare, and also their religious worship. This he would do 
with as much ease, seemingly as if he had spent his whole life with them. So before Joseph even gets the plates, he's learning about the ancient Nephites and Lamanites from Moroni and, and passing along those stories to his family. Joseph becomes the tradition bearer of those lost worlds and begins to develop his storyteller chops along the way. The third point about Moroni is that he does something. He is an angel invested with a mission to bring forward the Book of Mormon. Of course, Joseph realized by November 1831, when he dictated the revelation that currently appears in section 133 of the Doctrine and Covenants, that Moroni is the angel who John the Revelator prophesied would, quote, fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell in the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Moroni would bring that ancient gospel to the present day. There was no doubt among early Latter-day Saints that Moroni was significant, but no one believed the angel was more significant than the Apostle Orson Hyde. On July 4th, 1854, Hyde declared, It was by the agency of that same angel of God that appeared unto Joseph Smith and revealed to him the history of the early inhabitants of this country, whose mounds and bones, remains of towns, cities and fortifications speak from the dust of the ears of the living with the voice of undeniable truth. This same angel presides over the destinies of America and feels a lively interest in all our doings. He was in the camp of Washington, and by an invisible hand led our fathers to conquest and victory, and then all this to open and prepare the way for the Church and the Kingdom of God to be established on the Western Hemisphere, for the redemption of Israel and the salvation of the world. This same angel was with Columbus and gave him deep impressions by dreams and by visions, respecting this new world trammeled by poverty and by an unpopular cause. Yet his persevering and unyielding heart would not allow an obstacle in his way too great for him to overcome, and the angel of God helped him, was with him on the stormy deep, calm and troubled elements, and guided his frail vessel to the desired haven. Under the guardianship of the same angel or Prince of America, have the United States grown, increased, and flourished like the sturdy oaks by the rivers of water. It's pretty wild to hear Moroni called the Prince of America. Later in the same sermon, Orson Hyde calls him the guardian angel of the United States. A whole series of legends have arisen from the image of Moroni acting for the destiny of the nation. Tim Ballard famously suggests that Moroni appeared to George Washington. Right, and the first time I heard a story claiming Moroni was showing up to the founding fathers was from a roommate at Utah State University. He had come home excited from Institute where a teacher had told him the story that Moroni had appeared to the signers of the Declaration of Independence, and that the teacher had contacted Ronald Reagan himself, who had personally written him a letter while president, confirming the truth of the story based on a special book kept at the White House. Okay, we have a lot of legend traits in this story. The presence of a celebrity, it's of course a friend of a friend, as we've talked about in previous episodes. Right, and so you can imagine me at the time recognizing this sounded pretty implausible and not having a lot of experience cautiously talking on these subjects. So I offended my friend, who doubled down on the fact that his institute teacher wouldn't tell him a lie. The story is actually based on a well-known story that first appeared in George Lippiard's 1847 book, Washington and His Generals, or Legends of the Revolution, what was a collection of historical fiction set in the Revolution. The story later appeared in the Manly P. Hall's The Secret Destiny of America in 1944. And I'm actually a pretty big fan of this book. I think it's a lot of fun. But Manly P. Hall, as you almost could guess, forgot to mention 
that this was a fictive story that he added mm-hmm. to his collection. So when Ronald Reagan discovered it and spoke about it publicly when he was governor of California in 1974, he told it as a faith-promoting story of the nation's founding that actually occurred. Which leads to his integration into Moroni lore. There are several that, versions of that. this particular story that appear in the BYU Folklore Archives. So the story is that the signers of the Declaration hesitated to sign, worried that there would be severe consequences and persecution if they did so. Just then a mysterious man called, in these writings, the Unknown Patriot, speaks up, preaching a powerful sermon that would change their minds. Sign if the next moment the giblet's rope is around your neck. Sign if the next moment this hall rings with the echo of the falling axe. Sign by all your hopes in life or death, as husbands, as fathers, as men. Sign your names to the parchment or be accursed forever. Sign, and not only for yourselves, but for all ages. For that parchment will be the textbook of freedom, the Bible of the rights of man forever. Sign, for the declaration will go forth to American hearts forever and speak to those hearts like the voice of God. And its work will not be done until throughout this wide continent not a single inch of ground owns the sway of a British king. Nay, do not start and whisper with a surprise. It is a truth. Your own heart's witness it. God proclaims it. This continent is the property of a free people and their property alone. God, I say, proclaims it. And of course, this mysterious patriot was Moroni himself. At least, that's how it was integrated into Moroni lore. The next theme we should discuss is the idea that Moroni was traveling throughout the Americas, or at least he was traveling around the United States, after the decimation of his people and before his own death. I think this might be the most important set of lore associated with Moroni. There's even a map that claims to show Joseph Smith believed that Moroni was a wanderer. Sure, we have people expressing the idea from about the 1880s, if not further in the past, and always dating it from the time of Joseph Smith or Brigham Young. This map is pretty cool because it shows Moroni going from the land of Bountiful in Central America to the sand hills in southern part of Arizona, Salt Lake, Adamandiamon, Missouri, Nauvoo, Kirtland, and finally, Camora. Camora meaning Palmyra, New York. Exactly. And what was Moroni doing on this journey? I think most Latter-day Saints would know that Moroni was dedicating temples, getting ready for the return of the gospel on earth. The classic story comes from Warren Snow, who was a bishop in Manti, Utah at the time the Manti Temple was dedicated. He recalled Brigham Young telling him that the site of the temple could not be moved because of its association with Moroni. Here is the spot where the prophet Moroni stood and dedicated this piece of land for a temple site. And that is the reason why the location is made here. And we can't move it from this spot. And if you and I are the only persons that come here at high noon today, we will dedicate this ground. For about 30 years from the early 1980s to about 2012, there was a wonderful mortal Moroni statue not too far from the temple in Manti. It reminded people of this story and was fitting because the Manti temple is one of the few temples at the time that did not have a Moroni statue on the top, on the top of the temple itself. Last week, I interviewed Ryan Roos, an old friend um, dating back even before Christine and I were married, and a rare document dealer who moved to Manti around 2012. I want to play a clip from that conversation. It was cool. In addition to answering my questions, 
Ryan wrote up a statement describing the events and Manti around the statue, um, which is pretty cool. Check it out. The Mortal Mirai statue by Vard Fairbanks, which once sat at the base of the Manti Temple, served for many as a commemoration of Moroni's mortal visit to the Sampi Valley. It was during this reported visit that Moroni is said to have stood upon Temple Hill and set apart that spot of land for the future Manti Temple. For locals, this story of an ancient prophet coming to this valley is our lost chapter in the Book of Mormon, a conclusion in which Moroni comes here to Manti in anticipation of us. In the Sampi Valley, these stories are allowed to breathe freely, in part because this landscape remains so undeveloped. In Manti, you can see what Brigham saw and walk where Moroni walked. Manti, Utah transcends time. The story of Moroni's visit originally appeared in the 1888 work of Apostle Orson F. Whitney, titled The Life of Heber C. Kimball, and was published the same year as the Temple's dedication. Within this book, we find an account of an 1875 debate regarding the location of the future temple in San Pete. To help settle the matter, President Brigham Young is said to have taken prominent local pioneer Warren Snow to the southeast corner of today's Temple Hill and declared that corner to be the very spot which the mortal Moroni had selected for the temple's construction. It's important to note that locals were not the driving force behind the statue's removal, and quite the opposite. At the time of its removal in 2012, the mortal Moroni statue, which was placed at the entrance to the city, had come to hold an almost Ellis Island-level importance to the area. Unlike the Moroni statue atop the Hill Camorra, which features Moroni holding his right arm to the square, the Manti Moroni appears to be beckoning others to come closer. In fact, up until the pandemic, those who moved to Manti would almost universally claim that they were called to this area. This was certainly our experience. Accompanying this sense of gathering, for lack of a better term, are stories of a set-apart and protected valley. Most of these stories have an apocalyptic flavor, and all feature the idea of San Pete Valley being an ultimate place of refuge. In 1987, an Institute teacher by the name of John Peterson was asked by Manti historian Jane Braithwaite to find further corroboration for the Moroni Temple story, which he ultimately could not do. It's important to note that while the 1980s was a particularly sensitive time for Latter-day Saint history, the Mark Hoffman episode, for example, had left both members and scholars very much attuned to the historical sources. Most who I've spoken with attribute this period of reinterest in the story's veracity to the statue's ultimate removal. So is the telling of the story true? I'll say this. It's important to remember that while Brigham Young did not live to see the story published, Warren Snow did, as did the book's author, Apostle Orson F. Whitney, and the purported ghostwriter of the book, Edward Tullidge. At some point, one would think these questions would have arisen at the time of the story's telling rather than a hundred years later. The account itself is early and matches well with other statements attributed to Brigham Young at the time. So when the statue was ultimately removed in 2012, a number of residents took that as a disavowal of the story itself. And that is a tale that has really held a place of great importance to the residents, many of whom are descendants of Warren Snow. When the statue is removed, uh, you still have the Manti pageant in place. And this is important because this is a pageant that also celebrates the arrival of Moroni. And in fact, there's a, there was a a tremendous portion of that that was dedicated to the prophet Moroni and included his appearance and the west tower of the temple uh, lit up in, in grandiose fashion. It was, it was one of the pinnacles of the performance. And so when that was removed after the 2019 season, you then had people's attention turned to the news that the temple itself was going to be uh, worked upon and with the idea that uh, certain murals from the world room were going to be taken 
and, and remove. These were Minerva Tykert's, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the idea of removing Minerva Tykert murals uh, from one of the most beautiful rooms of the temple was uh, reintroduced uh, feelings uh, that were felt upon the removal of the statue and and the pageant. But and ultimately it was determined that the murals wouldn't be removed. So President Nelson announced the construction of a temple in Ephraim, Utah, which effectively um, protected the Manti Temple from further innovations. Uh, now my understanding is that you, while you will have uh, the filmed endowment presented in the temple, that the murals that were uh, the subject of so much uh, controversy um, are going to remain in place. Thanks so much for coming on, Ryan. It's it's pretty neat to have somebody who's actually on the ground there in Manti. Um, and of course, Moroni lore is all about um, local places, places where it's said Moroni traveled to. And Manti is the best example of that. One of the ways to chart Moroni's travels is by the petroglyphs that he allegedly left behind. And as most of you probably know, petroglyphs are Native American rock art you can find throughout the American West. When early Latter-day Saints arrived in the region, some identified them as Reformed Egyptian, the language of the Book of Mormon's golden plates. W.W. Phelps even translated some of these carvings. Right. You can read about this in my book, Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints in the American Apocalypse. Good plug, Chris. In recent decades, people have started to associate some sites specifically with Moroni. Jose de Villa, who was one of the first men to give tours of alleged Book of Mormon sites in Mexico, has even identified a specific glyph with what he calls Moroni's signature. You can look it up. It looks to me like a crowned all-seeing eye with a few other details added. I asked Ryan a bit about the petroglyphs in Manti, and he had some interesting thoughts. So behind the Manti Temple... Uh, on private land uh, exist petroglyphs uh, that are are inscrolled above a cave. And so there are a number of stories locally as to the origins of both the petroglyph and the cave and their relationship to Moroni. Now, if you have Moroni coming to this valley in 400 AD, uh, this is not unthinkable that these would be um, to that period, you look just to the south, you will find Fremont Indian uh, petroglyphs, and the surrounding areas have writing upon the walls which actually predate uh, the Moroni story. And so this has been something that has been incorporated into the Moroni lore for the area, the idea that Moroni has, had come here, spent time upon this hill, found it to be sacred, and left his mark upon it. Let's conclude this episode with a fascinating legend about Moroni recorded by Charles D. Evans, who was a patriarch in Springville, Utah, and said he heard the story while visiting a meeting in nearby Spanish Fork. This was the winter of 1896. The speaker's last name was Higginson. So Brother Higginson during the meeting said that he had heard Thomas B. Marsh say that he had heard this story from Joseph Smith himself. Gotta love those lines of transmission. Absolutely. And here's the account. And in answer to prayer, the Lord gave Joseph a vision, in which appeared a wild country. And on the scene was Moroni, after whom were six Indians in pursuit. He stopped, and one of the Indians stepped forward, and measured swords with him. 
Moroni smote him, and he fell dead. Another Indian advanced and contended with him. This Indian also fell by his sword. A third Indian then stepped forth and met the same fate. A fourth afterwards contended with him, but in the struggle with the fourth, Moroni, being exhausted, was killed. Thus ended the life of Moroni. The early saints want to know what Moroni was up to between his final lines in the Book of Mormon and his death. And what he was up to until he met Joseph Smith. These stories flesh out that life of Moroni that we desperately want more information about and don't seem to have in Scripture. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Angels and Seerstones. We'll see you next week. See you then. Happy 200th. We would like to thank our voice actors for this episode. Reese Boardman of Springville, Utah, Janice Johnson, the author of Convicting the Mormons, Matthew Magula and Mark Magula of Delray Beach, Florida, and Jordan Watkins, a religious education professor at Brigham Young University. We couldn't do this show without the wonderful help of friends and colleagues who share our passion of bringing out these stories. Thank you. Angels and Seerstones is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. You can support this podcast and others in our network by subscribing at dialoguejournal.com.